I had to start for us today some charming background legend on St. Nicholas or St. Nicholas or St. Claus or Santa Claus. I learned this uh, from the newsletter of a teacher on contemplative prayer named Mike Morell. So I'm going to read from uh, Morell. <clears throat> it says, Nicolaus is said to have encouraged a culture of generosity among the people he served as bishop in modern-day Turkey, saying, the giver of every good and perfect gift has called upon us to mimic God's giving. Many tales surround Nicolaus's own legendary generosity, none more poignant than that of three young sisters and their impoverished father. In the sisters' time and culture, they were likely destined to a life of forced prostitution with their father unable to pay proper dowries to potential suitors. When Nicolaus heard of this, he intervened by providing an abundance of gold to each of the girls as they came of age, coming under the cover of night so as not to bring shame upon the family. Their benefactor was a mystery to them, though the second girl, hoping similar gifts might be coming her way, allegedly set her stockings out the night before her birthday, which were in turn filled with gold. When the final girl came of age, their father stayed up all night to see who this elusive gift giver was. Nicolaus, crafty in his generosity, tossed his final bountiful gift through the chimney so as to avoid detection. And to honor St. Nicholaus and his legacy, people around Europe in the Middle Ages exchanged gifts on the day of his death, December 6th, December 6th the feast of St. Nicholas in the liturgical church traditions. That's fun background, right? Kind of charming, right? But also inspiring. The origins of Santa Claus are someone who made like intentional decisions to try to abolish poverty. So let's come back to that in a little bit. Today is the third Sunday of Advent as we were lighting the candles uh, to mark the four weeks that lead up to Christmas throughout the year here at uh, BLC or at any church. Uh, you will visit various texts across the Bible, but every year in Advent, we visit a few familiar texts again. The birth narratives of Jesus in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, and then the scriptures from the Hebrew Bible that Matthew and Luke creatively attached to Jesus. And there's something about that rhythm that is particularly formative, going back to these texts and what they evoke. It's time to be more intentional. We, you know, we, we do more or more uh, ritualistic things like lighting candles, like taking a moment to pray when we maybe wouldn't in most weeks when we're just going about our lives. And so if you've been following along with our home liturgies that we've released, our Advent mealtime prayers for families, for friends, for roommates to share together. Together. We've been trying to release these once a, a week uh, on, on Sundays here in Advent uh, to uh, facilitate that, for this to be a time where you have a few more regular rhythms of prayer worked into your life. And so our third one will go out today uh, over email or Discord or Instagram, wherever you'd like to follow that. Okay, so the biblical text these uh, last several years that we've returned to on the third Sunday of Advent um, has been Matthew chapter 2, and that is the story of the Magi, or the wise men, and Herod in this confrontation. Uh, if you will remember with me, we've been painting the, the background context here because, you know, like, 
the stories about Jesus's uh, virgin birth, this special angelic announcements and everything, it's such an ingrained part of modern Western culture's observance of Christmas, right? Because like songs are on that mention these events, you know, since like, uh, I mean, even before Thanksgiving, right? Like there, since like November, we've been listening to them. So, uh, so it's easy to misunderstand why it is significant, why we want to go back to these stories every year in their historical context. The significance of the story of this virgin birth with angelic announcement is, is not that there, was n- there were never any other stories told about such a person. And oh my gosh, that Jesus is the only one. He's the winner. So go. Oh, Jesus, the winner, because he's the one who has a virgin birth. That's not actually the reason for the significance of going back to it. The significance is that there very much were other stories about noble births, even virgin births, of, uh, uh, about, told about different people in the ancient world. The Roman Caesar, or emperor in particular, the most powerful person in the known world, if you lived in the Mediterranean, 2,000 years ago. And th- this was a thing in ancient biographies. Here are these miraculous circumstances that surrounded this person's birth because they became a hero and they became this super powerful, important figure. So their birth must have been bonkers. And that's why we have these kind of stories. The Christmas stories of Jesus's noble birth are subversions of that noble birth pattern in the ways that biographies were told about important people in the ancient world, particularly the biographies that were told about the Roman Caesar. The message was, Jesus is an alternative king to the Roman Caesar, with an alternative kingdom to the Roman Empire, not a power-hungry tyrant who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth, but a humble teacher of love born in a manger, not a violent empire that claims peace but enforces that with violence, but a nonviolent commonwealth that practices what it preaches. That's the, the contrast here. And as we go a step down in the power hierarchy in this first century Roman empire, below the Caesar is the local governor of first century Palestine who does the Caesar's will in exchange for getting to be the king of his own castle. And those local governors were called the Herods. So as we read Matthew's Christmas story today, Matthew chapter two, the Magi and the Herod, we are imagining, we're keeping in mind this context. We have Herod and Caesar representing this imperial power on one side. And then we have Jesus, the alternative humble king on the other side, okay? Uh, This year, I want to read the story of the Magi uh, and uh, Herod from the First Nations version of the Bible. This is a translation of the New Testament uh, into English by Native North Americans following the tradition of Native storytellers' uh, oral culture. Uh, And one of the brilliant contributions of the First Nations version is the way it handles names. So uh, as we read here, Mary is bitter tears... The Magi are seekers of wisdom, and my absolute favorite, Herod, is Chief Looks Brave, which is just an excellent, subtle little dig, right? Uh, we, we've been reading this version with uh, my kids, and our seven-year-old Wesley is like, oh, he looks brave, but he's not really brave. I was like, yeah, good, you know? So that's kind of fun. All right, we're going to read from the First Nations version. It was during the days of the bad-hearted Chief Looks Brave 
that the chosen one was born in the village House of Bread in the land of promise. After his birth, seekers of wisdom traveling on a long journey from the east came to the capital city of the Israelites. They began to ask around, where's the one who has been born to be chief of the tribes of Israel? We saw his star when the sun rises and have come to humble ourselves before him and honor him. When Chief Looksbrave heard this, he and all who lived in the capital city of the Israelites were troubled. He called a council of all the head holy men and scroll keepers and asked them, where was this chosen one to be born? Then Chief Looksbrave called a secret council with the seekers of wisdom to find out when the star first appeared. He told them, look everywhere for the child, find him and tell me where he is so that I may also come honor him. Really? Really? Yeah. After listening, did I lose our, sorry, excuse me there. There we are, excuse me. After listening to Chief Looks Brave, the seekers of wisdom went their way. When they saw the star rising in the east, they jumped with joy, and with glad hearts they followed until the star stopped and rested over the place where the child was. They went into the house and saw the child and his mother bitter tears. As soon as they saw the child, they bowed, to, they bowed to, down to honor him. They opened their bundles and gifted him with gold, sweet-smelling incense, and bitter ointment of myrrh. The seekers of wisdom were warned in a dream not to go back to Chief Looksbrave. So they returned to their homeland by a different road. As the story famously continues, Herod, in his fury that his flattery of the Magi did not work, orders the murder of every child under two in and around Bethlehem. Truly a presentation of two very different kingdoms, right? This is what begins Matthew's gospel. Matthew goes on now to tell the story of Jesus's life and ministry and eventually his death and resurrection. How does he set it up? Two very different kingdoms. So last year during Advent, we asked the question, what are the Herod and Caesar-like powers of today that sit on top and look brave and claim peace, but really are dishonest and looking to profit by any means necessary, including resorting to violence? And we worked this idea, and we'll work it again this year, that many progressive biblical scholars and theologians suggest that the Herods and Caesars of today are those protecting the freedom of an unchecked global market that exploits people and pillages the planet. Those protecting the global religion of economism, as I've heard it called. You know, if religion is about what you put your trust in, Is there a more broadly and deeply adhered to religion in the world than economism? Right? It's not belief in God, but it's very much religious belief in the invisible hand of the market that will save us all as riches trickle down from the top. But those riches never really do trickle down, do they? 
how much conflict this stokes or exacerbates downstream among smaller powers vying for the limited leftovers while those on the top stay well-fed. That is one of the pieces of the story of the atrocities in Gaza right now that particularly grieves me. Closer to home here, since the 1980s, particularly in America, but also elsewhere in the West, there's been a renewed commitment to extreme freedom for the market, that you know, thing we believe in religiously, removing regulations that would, might protect workers so the market can grow without restriction forever, growth and growth and growth, no matter who it tramples, no matter who it runs into. The ratio between the salary of the average CEO and the salary of the average employee of a company in America today has gotten completely out of hand. According to Statista Research in 2020, the ratio of CEO to employee salary was 398 to one. 398 times more money for the CEOs than the average worker. The growth is not trickling down, right? That's not a societal contract between employers and employees for mutual benefit. That's exploitation when it's 398 to one. In his recent book, Poverty by America, what a, what a title, right? Poverty by America. Uh, the sociologist Matthew Desmond points out that 38 million people live below the poverty line, but also the poverty line is way too low. Do you know what the, the line drawn for, uh, for poverty for a family of four in America right now is? This is they say, if you're below this, you're impoverished, you're, you're poor. $28,000 a year. If you ask anybody, not even just a family of four, you know, a, a dual income, no kids family, how much is it gonna take for you to get by, especially in a place like Chicago? Are they gonna say $28,000? No! They're gonna say like 40,000, 50,000, right? $28,000, that's what it takes to be poor? One in three Americans live in homes making $50,000 or less a year. So there are millions more people who are not officially poor right now in America, but who live in poverty. Millions more than that 38 million that are officially poor. Matthew Desmond talks about how there are actually a lot of good experiments out there trying to identify better ways to calculate poverty so we can address it more systemically and correctly and accurately, but there is pushback. Why? Why on earth would there be pushback on changing something that so obviously needs to be changed? Because more accurate recalculations of who is officially poor would mean rises in the official poor numbers by the millions, and politicians don't want that to happen on their watches for PR reasons. You know, they, they say, the, the argument goes, you know, common people, common busy people won't be able to discern the nuance of like, oh, the reason poverty was, was up so much during my uh, time in power was because there were recalculations. And so when my opponents say, look how much poverty grew under this person, they're they, they, they think that that's too complicated for people to track with. 
So, so they just kind of like throw their hands up and say, well, we're just going to roll with this because it's the best we've got. But it's not the best we've got. That's either willfully deceptive of, of us as the masses, or it's at the very least condescending of us with this assumption that we wouldn't be able to understand, right? Gee, thanks. You know, thanks person who's supposed to represent me. You think I'm stupid and, you can't, and I can't track, you know? In my opinion, this is not being realistic. It's a cynical lack of imagination. And this sort of behavior to me is the behavior of Herod's and Caesar's today. So in the Christmas story, we just read that last line, the Magi are warned in a dream and refuse to cooperate with Herod. They go home by another way. They sense the dishonesty. They heed the call that comes to them in their spirits, in a dream, in nature, around. They're following a star, right? They're paying attention, and they heed the call. Despite the, you know, flattering, no doubt tempting call to them from the powerful Herod to be in, ooh, to be in Herod's council. Herod's so important, right? But they refuse it. If today those protecting the unchecked, exploitative market are the Herods and the Caesars of our world, turning a blind eye to poverty, where can we find those who are the magi of our world? Those responding to the deeper call to make courageous choices, to refuse cooperation with such exploitation. In answering that, I want to refer back to our series this fall as we talked about societal burnout. There is an oppression in our current economic context that all of the 99% of people who have to work for a living experience, including even a middle-class white person with privilege like me. There's an exploitation and oppression that even I experience because I am among that 99% of people that have to work for a living. All of us are dehumanized. This is a word we've been going back to during Advent, dehumanized. All of us are dehumanized by the endless acceleration that our economism demands. You have to grow. You have to keep going. You have to stay busy or else you'll fall behind. It's different for the middle class than for the working class, and that's important to note. There are differences. We don't want to equate the two because that will minimize the acute experience of this for the poor. For the poor, for the working class, dehumanization is imposed on them externally by time clocks and cruel bosses and systemic injustice. For the middle class, the dehumanization is internal. We take it on as guilt feelings for, that, for not keeping up. Oh, they're right, I'm not keeping up. I'm not staying busy as much as I should. I'm not performing myself as well or as authentically as the next person. And oh gosh, there's so much more. Oh man, look at them and their side hustles. They're so much cooler. They, oh, they, they figured it out and I'm so rotten. Those are not the same. The external pressures or the internal guilt, they're not the same, but there is a commonality there that we are all being dehumanized. We are alive, but we're not really human because we're constantly looking around just thinking about what we're not. 
what we're not keeping up with. Oh my gosh, like you just, you cease to be a human being who can feel joy and grief and happiness and fun and anger and all of those things because you're just so swept up in this, like keep up or die, innovate or die. The middle class like me must see in light of this commonality that we have more in common with the rest of the 99% of people who have to work for a living, the poor, the working class, we have more in common with them than we do with the rich. I'm speaking to myself as somebody who identifies as middle class. Who, that, that's, my, that's my demographic. That's my social status. I must see that I have more in common with the poor and the working class than I do with the rich who it is so easy, that my, my attention is so easily drawn to focus on the risk because gosh, being in their orbit, like having what they have or wanting the status that they, you know, enjoy. Oh, it's so easy to be pulled there. Oh, look at that. Oh, I could, could use that. Oh, that, that sounds like a fun weekend. You know, it's so easy for me to be pulled in that direction. I must see that I have more in common with the poor and the working class than I do with the rich. Choosing solidarity with the rest of the 99% like the Magi refuse to cooperate with Herod and Caesar, I believe that is our translation of this passage to today. Responding to the call that is within us if we're paying attention to go home by another road. That is there at the same time as that orbit pulling us into the rich. There's also that call, ooh, maybe you should go home by another road. James Taylor, the singer-songwriter, um, famous in the 70s and 80s and still uh, writing today, one of my favorites, wrote uh, in 1988 the song Home by Another Way. And it's, it's all building on this, um, this story uh, uh, in, in the Christmas um, uh, gospel of, uh, of Matthew. He says, steer clear of royal welcomes, avoid a big to-do. A king who would slaughter the innocents will not cut a deal for you. Time to go home by another way. But Herod's always out there. He's got our cards on file. It's a lead pipe cinch. If we give an inch, old Herod likes to take a mile. That's good, right? We got this far to a lucky star, but tomorrow is another day. We can make it another way. Safe home, as they used to say. Keep a weather eye on the chart, or to the chart on high and go home by another way. It's good, right? James Taylor. So this line, go home by another way, it bears a resemblance to the phrase we've leaned into this advent from the womanist theologian Monica Coleman, making a way out of no way. This is what we've been coming back to each of the Sundays here of Advent. Dr. Coleman unpacks the social and religious experience of black women to develop a picture of God and that's the, her kind of big contribution to theology over the last several years. Who is God? Where in life might we recognize God? Where, today, right? Not just in stories of the past. If we start with the experience of black women rather than the usual, you know, Euro-American white men, what picture do we get of God? That is what Coleman is trying to do in her work, making a way out of no way. She says, God is the call and the force of love that makes ways out of no way. The call and the force. Making a way out of a no way is a pillar phrase in uh, black American history. 
The idea is anytime you feel trapped, stuck, hopeless, or also tempted, which I think is this big part of this Magi story, right? The temptation to cooperate with Herod and Caesar. But in spite of that temptation or in spite of feeling stuck, you carry on. Anytime that happens, that's God making a way out of no way. When you experience a way made out of no way, that's God. The pull lovingly calling you forward, the push giving you the courage to resist temptation or to listen to that loving call. And so Coleman's view of God captures, I think, what the Advent season is all about. It is not just a remembrance of the way Jesus came 2,000 years ago to show a people God's call, but it is a a settling of our hearts to embrace the way the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, continues to come in every moment now, showing us God's call. We do not just have stories from the past to show us God's call. If we can quiet ourselves, that call can be recognized, perceived today to make a way out of no way, to go home by another way. Coleman uh, Coleman describes the spiritual life so well. And so forgive me, I'm going to put a very long quotation of hers on the screen. I hope you will find it worth it for me to read an extended uh, bit from Monica Coleman. I, I I think it's worth it. The possibilities we consider when we make decisions come from God. God orders these possibilities, urging us luring or persuading us to choose those options that lead to a vision of the common good. Do you, hear, do you hear the story of the Magi right there in what she started with? Some theologians have called this urging, the voice of God, the whisper of God, intuition, God's love for the world, or that voice inside. God calls us, indeed, the entire world toward God's vision for the common good. In this calling, God begs to be recognized, and yet, God can also be ignored. Coleman writes, she intentionally uses the language of God's calling to describe God's activity in the world. The language of God of call resonates with the language of religious communities that understand the ideal spiritual life is one lived in response to a call from God. The word calling goes beyond the singularity implied in this word call. The call may not be experienced as a a clear sentence or directional order. As Marjorie Suhaki puts it, God will indeed offer guidance, but the guidance will not be in the form of a clear voice in the night, but in the form of options to weigh, factors to consider, friends to consult, In addition, God may call us more than once and to more than one thing. God's calling is individual and general. It comes to us as individuals, but also as communities. Sometimes as we become, we operate and make decisions and act in ways that conform to God's calling. Sometimes we do not. We are genuinely free to become in the ways that God is calling us or not. This is not a singular or one-time calling. In every moment, in every context, God is calling us. Over and over again, we have the opportunity to align ourselves with God's calling or not. The world is harmonious when it responds affirmatively or conforms to God's calling. 
So this, to me, just describes the spiritual life so well. Just as we see in the story of the Magi, God is calling to the world in every moment, in many different ways, individually and communally, to align ourselves with that vision for the common good. Are we listening, you know? Sometimes we respond with courage and alignment and listening ears, and sometimes we don't. And thus the struggle against poverty, exploitation, violence, vengeance, all these things, they continue. But God is faithful and continues to call in every moment, this moment and this moment and this moment and tomorrow when you wake up and the next day when you wake up and next Sunday and next time you get horrible news of what's happening in the world, God is faithful and continues to call. And I love this line, often in the form of options to weigh, factors to consider, friends to consult. I love that. That is absolutely how I hear God's call. When you experience those things, oh, that's a new option to weigh. Oh, I should, I should call that person. All those different things. When you experience those things, do you name them as God's call in your life? I wonder what could happen if you do. Because that is where I want to end here. The feeling of relationship and of like close companionship and intimacy that I experience because I have learned to name those little perceptions in the back of my mind. Oh, that's a new option to weigh. I've learned to name that as God calling to me. That is such a source of fuel in my life. It is such a source of feeling loved in my life because I've learned to name those things as that is a personal, loving God who is coming to me and speaking to me and calling me. I feel more comfortable in my shoes. I feel settled in my spirit despite the overwhelm of it all. I feel more courageous to, you know, take the steps that I need to take. So I encourage you to name those little things, those those. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I could, I could do that. A new possibility comes to you. What if you considered that the Spirit of God calling you? Address God within you. Find God calling back to you in those spaces. I promise you, it is a wonderful feeling to start to see that develop. And that is where I want to pray for us this morning, if we can get ourselves in touch with God's call to us in this moment. So get, get yourself comfortable. I'm going to adjust my seat here. <clears throat> and if it helps you, um, we're sort of, you know, again, we're, we're rolling with this idea that those little things that might flash through our brains are God's call to us. So if it helps you to close your eyes to help you focus, please feel free to close your eyes. Uh, not at all a requirement. Sometimes prayer for me is like um, uh, focusing on uh, a, a light source, you know, a candle. If you want to light a candle, that's a, that's a long-standing prayer practice. If you want to you know, look at a corner of the room, something that can just help you shut out distractions is what you need. So you don't have to close your eyes, but if that helps you, I encourage you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us.
God, I choose to believe that this is a moment where we are being communally called to, as Dr. Coleman wonders. So uh, for any of us who um, feel especially open to that, we um, look now for your calling to us as a community, as a group, as a bunch of people that come together as one unit. And we are people who feel grieved about the violence that's happening in Gaza. We are people who are grieved about the, you know, the, our discussion right now of poverty in America, the unique poverty that is happening all around us and just often just feels invisible because we are, are, are all of those demands on us that just keep our, our eyes off the ball. We're just so tired. We are a group of people that feels communally, societally burnt out. Not because of anything any of us are doing wrong, but we just feel burnt out because, God, everybody's burnt out. We are a community of people that wishes we could do more, that wishes we knew more, that wishes we were, you know, I don't know, signaling that we were a good person better. Well, all of these things, we just feel so weighed down by these things. Call to us, God. Call to us as a group. Show us that we are acceptable despite the ways we feel unacceptable. Call to us about ways to practically resist the exploitation that we've talked a little bit about today. Chosen to focus on even though it's hard and uncomfortable. What can we do And I want you to stay in that place of prayer. I don't want to interrupt anything. I'm going to encourage us all to take one very deep breath in and then out. And I'm going to pray for a bit longer after that. So let's take a deep breath in. And exhale. And now, God, we receive your call as individuals. We do have our own unique stories. And some of us feel more trouble or tension or grief or concern than others in the room. Some of us feel more resourced or like able to be helpful than others in the room. What are you calling to each of us now? And again, we settle our minds to listen to you. For any of us who may feel like, oh, something, something flitted across my, my brain space there, a thought, a possibility, a friend to consult, a factor to consider, or maybe a, like a, a phrase just stayed with us or a picture appeared in our mind. God, we receive that. We ask for you to continue to speak to us. We ask for your help 
to stay the course in whatever it is you are calling to us as individuals and as a group. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are um, compelled by this suggestion, we've worked today that what it means to refuse to cooperate with the Herod and the Caesars of today um, is to work toward an economy that is different, that is based in solidarity and not in just growth and growth and growth and growth forever for the market until, you know, supposedly the money trickles down. Uh, there is one action item that I want to give everybody today, um, and that is to educate yourself on uh, the Bring Chicago Home referendum that will be on Chicago's March 2024 ballot. Um, I know that not all of us are Chicago residents, but um, this is just sort of an important thing to be on people's radar. Is anybody familiar with the Bring Chicago Home uh, referendum? Anyone heard about it yet? Okay, a couple people. Great, this will be good. So this is important to, um, to know about. Uh, we'll talk about this more as uh, March 2024 gets closer, because those of us who are Chicago residents, this will be on the, sh on the March ballot. Basically, uh, Bring Chicago Home is a referendum that will increase the one-time tax that is leveled on real estate transfers. So when somebody buys uh, real estate, <laughs> um, it will raise the tax leveled on property sales over $1 million. Uh, and what it will do is generate over $100 million for addressing homelessness. Uh, for property sales under $1 million, the transfer tax will actually go down. So this is actually good for the middle class too. If, if, if you've ever bought a home that's less than a million dollars, that, that transfer tax will go down. But for property sales over one million, it will go up, and quite a lot. Um, there is obviously some pushback because it will go up quite a lot. Um, it will be up to Chicago voters in March 2024 to decide whether or not this goes through. Again, this will generate, by estimations, $100 million to, that is specifically marked for addressing homelessness in Chicago. So taxing, sales, it's just a one-time tax. It's not like an ongoing thing, but it's like when you buy a home, you, get, you have to pay one tax, that's, or multiple taxes, but one tax in particular is the transfer tax, and that's going up if the sale is over a million dollars. I believe this referendum is very much in line with the application of biblical wisdom that we just talked about today. So bear it in mind. Action item for those of us who live in Chicago.